Catholic vocations. Making the process of discerning your vocation in the Catholic Church less mysterious. Empowering you with tools to make a better informed choice for the most important decision in your life. The Father's house has many mansions. What will your path be to reach heaven? Hello and welcome to the Catholic Vocations Podcast. This is the second part of the episode entitled Happily Ever After Fairy Tale Debunked. In our first episode, we explored the idea that fairy tales point to the perennial truth of the human being's longing for God, who is the supreme reward of good people. We saw that wealth, power, status, and all of those good things that can come to us do not actually satisfy the human heart with its longings for the infinite. Today, we're going to turn our attention to how the happily ever after fairy tale myth influences our discernment of marriage as a vocation and also can make us feel with regard to vocations that the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence when it comes to our life now and in our future vocations. It's probably a good idea to start now with a reflection on how the happily ever after fairy tale ending culturally influences our thoughts about marriage. And before we start with that, let me share a little bit of my background that is pertinent to this conversation. My name is Mother Therese Ivers. I am a canon lawyer. As a canon lawyer, I work for tribunals in the Catholic Church. Most dioceses have their own tribunals, which is a court system, and a lot of the cases that come before the tribunals are marriage cases. That is, people who have obtained a civil divorce seek to know whether in the eyes of the church they are single or married, and if the church determines that the marriage that they thought they had gotten into was actually not a marriage from the very beginning, they receive a declaration of invalidity. It's also known as an annulment. I mention this because my work that pertains to what we might think of as failed marriages is very relevant for our consideration of how the happily ever after fairy tale myth affects our discernment of marriage. After all, a lot of people don't live happily ever after in their marriages, and many of these marriages end up in divorce, and people want to know whether their marriage was valid in the eyes of the church or not, and so they go to the tribunal of the church. And in my work, I've had different roles in the tribunals. I have worked as judge, I have worked as advocate, and I've worked in a position that is called the defender of the bond, which means that I am actually an attorney for the bond of marriage in the trials. So this is important because when we look at marriage, we should understand what marriage is but we should also understand what it is not. My work requires that I know what marriage is, what ideal marriages look like, and what are things that don't make a marriage. So when I talk about the happily ever after fairy tale, I'm speaking from the experience of seeing a lot of failed marriages. Or put in another way, I see it from the perspective of 
people who have gone to the altar during their wedding, they've made vows, and then months or years later, they go to the courts for a divorce, and now they're wondering, did I actually marry? And unfortunately, in today's atmosphere where almost half of the people who get married will end up divorced, it's not realistic to think that if we get married, we will live happily ever after, like we see in fairy tales, where somebody gets married and it's always said that they live happily ever after. So I guess the big cultural myth that most of us grow up with, culturally, is that marriage will be wonderful. Marriage will be great. Marriage will be so fantastic that once we get married, we will live happily ever after. When a person is discerning marriage, and I should just say this for the record, this will not be the only episode on discerning marriage. I am simply giving you some examples so that we understand how the happily ever after fairy tale myth affects us in a way that we need to realize when we're doing vocational discernment. We will be discussing marriage in other episodes, but let's just talk a little bit about some factors that should come into our discernment of marriage, and particularly in today's atmosphere where there's a lot of divorces. So when we look at some of the principal causes of divorces, we see that disagreements on finances, religion, and children can eventually lead to divorce. We also have a dimension that a lot of people don't talk about as much, which is how marriage is intrinsically tied with the ability to live sacrificially for one's spouse. You know, one of the problems that we have with the happily ever after idea is that it's all about both people just somehow magically being happy. But in reality, each spouse has to work very hard in order to help the other spouse be happy and holy. And in fact, this requires a potential spouse to have the ability to live sacrificially. Marriage is not just a, oh, I am going to get all of these benefits. I am going to be so happy. I am going to be fulfilled. Marriage is also, how do I help the other? Ideally, a continuous stream of mutual self-sacrificing. There will be numerous opportunities for sacrifice because this is a union of two people. And obviously, two people are not going to be identical. They're going to have different preferences. They're going to have different desires. They're going to have different ideas. And they're also going to have different needs. Those needs are going to depend on different things, depending on what phase they are in their fertility, their life, their career, etc. When we hear fairy tales and, you know, so-and-so got married and they lived happily ever after, we don't think about the child that is screaming at 2 a.m. wanting to be fed. We don't think about the times when the spouse is ill. We don't think about the times that the trash needs to be taken out. We don't think about the times when both spouses are looking at the budget and if there's a little bit of discretionary money, sometimes one spouse will want one big ticket item and the other spouse will want something else. 
How is that resolved? You know, again, it goes back to an ideal marriage requires the ability to live sacrificially on the part of both spouses. Personally, one of the stories I love that illustrates the concept of self-sacrifice for the other can be found in the story written by O. Henry called The Gift of the Magi. In this story, there's a young couple and the husband and wife are trying to buy a Christmas gift for each other. Now, the couple is very poor and both of them are madly in love with each other. And what happens is the wife, whose name is Della, wants to get a pocket watch chain for her husband to attach to his pocket watch. She only has a little bit of money, so she goes and sells her hair in order to get the sufficient funds to get the pocket watch. For his part, Jim, who is her husband, wants to get a magnificent gift for his wife. He had his eyes on a tantalizing gift for Della. He ends up selling his watch in order to buy some hair combs. So you can imagine their surprise when on Christmas, Della gets a set of hair combs and Jim gets a pocket watch chain for the pocket watch that he sold. It's a beautiful story of the self-sacrifice of both Della and Jim who wanted to mark Christmas with special gifts. When couples are selfish, things can go very badly for marriages. For example, some of the things that routinely come up in marriage nullity cases of things that couples fight over can include spending on cigarettes, alcohol, cars, hunting equipment, etc. instead of paying for basic bills. Oftentimes in fairy tale marriages, the couple will have access to large sums of money because they've married into royalty or have access to unlimited funds. But in reality, most people do have to prioritize their spending. And in marriage, there has to be a certain fundamental agreement between the spouses as to what expenses are prioritized. This is something that can be deeply influenced by the families of each spouse and their spending habits and examples. It is important that in the discernment of marriage that a person sit down and actually discuss with their potential spouse what their philosophy is towards finances, what their philosophy is about investing in savings and spending, what needs to be prioritized, what principles are used in order to figure out how to prioritize an, an expense, etc. And by doing this in advance, before the wedding, it will help increase the likelihood that the couple will be more happy after the wedding together. And perhaps they will be able to avoid a lot of pitfalls when it comes to their family budgeting. Now, another area that is never mentioned in fairy tales is the role that religion can play in so far as the happiness of the married couple is concerned. So let's talk about that a little bit. We have marriages between Catholics and non-Catholics. And previously, the church had been very strict about not allowing Catholics to marry non-Catholics because of the high likelihood of unhappiness in the marriage 
and the possibility of divorce, the possibility of the Catholic spouse leaving the faith, etc. Today, it's easier to get permission to marry a non-Catholic. However, it is not enough to feel love for the other person to guarantee that there will be peace and harmony when it comes to religion. A lot of marriages don't crack when it has to do with the religion of the spouses. If the husband or wife is a practicing Catholic and the other person is not, while they have no children, oftentimes there won't be huge clashes about religion. You know, the the Catholic can practice their faith and the non-Catholic will do what they want. Maybe they go to RCIA, maybe they don't. But generally speaking, the huge clashes about religion come into play when the couple start having children. Then all of a sudden, religion can be a major point of contention because maybe both families have very strong feelings on religion and they expect the child to be raised one way or the other. And perhaps, and oftentimes too, having a child can bring out those feelings in somebody that they did not feel before. You know, it could be the spouse is Catholic, but wasn't really practicing until a child is born. And then all of a sudden, it's very important for that child to be baptized and so on and so forth. Or perhaps a parent really didn't care whether the the child is raised Catholic in theory, but then when their child is born, the whole Catholic upbringing of the child hits home and it's not something that they're comfortable with for their child. And that can be the cause of many fights in terms of how disagreements on religion can lead to broken marriages. Another thing pertaining to the practice of religion that can lead to divorce is how religion is practiced. So let's say you have two Catholics. They might have entirely different ideas as to how the Catholic faith must be practiced. And again, um, talking about the role of one's Catholic faith in one's married life is very important for fiancés and people who are dating because it's important because of the consequences of differences because there are differences in how religion is practiced, how Catholicism is practiced by each person can lead to serious fights later on in a marriage. So let's look at some of the major sources of disagreement Catholic spouses may have between themselves. One of them has to do with mass attendance. Oftentimes, it happens that until there are children, the spouses are not really keeping tabs on the mass attendance of the other spouse. But when a parent is trying to raise the child strictly according to Catholic tradition, then they will expect at least mass attendance on Sundays for the child, and they want the other spouse to be going to Mass with them. And this is a huge, huge, huge point of contention in a lot of marriages. And in fact, I can say from my experience with annulment cases that this is something that pops up very often in these cases is that there is a disappointed spouse 
who's majorly disappointed. Sometimes they feel that they have been lied to by the other spouse when the other spouse is not actually raising their children Catholic, not going with that spouse to Mass on Sundays and Holy Days of Obligation. Another element of Catholic practice that spouses may very heartily disagree with is on the church teachings pertaining to human sexuality. Oftentimes there is intense disagreement when it comes to the practice of natural family planning and also the rules pertaining to contraception. Likewise, in today's environment, in today's hypersexualized environment, there is also an element that is not talked about enough, which is the sin of pornography and its horrible effect on marriages. The use of pornography isn't just a sin against marriage. It isn't just a sin against chastity. Pornography can destroy marriages because it objectifies human beings. It objectifies them and makes people into objects of pleasure. So it trains the person who is looking at pornography to treat human beings as objects, as non-persons, as things that exist solely to provide pleasure. And concretely, what this means is a lot of people have been harmed in their marriages when their spouses view pornography because they are increasingly treated just as a way for the other to get pleasure. And in fact, a lot of women start to feel, and rightly so, as if they can't compete because pornography leads to an idealized object, something that a real human being, a real woman, can never compete with. There is a downward spiral in how a husband or wife is treated by the person viewing pornography and getting caught up into this impossible to satiate desire for different novel experiences of union, which can be more and more perverted. I am not going to get into detail about that, but there are studies done on it. Now, I mention this because it is very important during the time of courtship for people to evaluate their prospective spouse, particularly in the realm of whether or not they are enmeshed in the addiction of pornography. This can't be emphasized too much. This is one of the biggest marriage killers out there right now. And a lot of people do view and not just view pornography, but are addicted to it. It's important to look at the statistics of those who are addicted to pornography and to understand the consequences of marriage with a person who has had an addiction to anything but especially in this sense of pornography because this is something that without a lot of sacrifice without a lot of discipline it's easy very easy for a person to slip into this again and again and again and again and it will make the other spouse feel objectified feel worthless feel inadequate and it is 
like I said, a huge, huge marriage breaker. Speaking of addictions, this is another thing that needs to be discerned and evaluated of one's potential spouse. You know, there are some addictions which really gravely affect marriage. For example, the use of alcohol, gambling, and drug use. These are things that can gravely impact in a very, very, very negative way one's attempt to marry somebody. And it it impacts the person who is addicted, their ability to assume the obligations of marriage. They might not even be able to live up to the obligations of marriage because they're caught up in the net of addiction. So, you know, if, if all of their money is being spent on alcohol and drugs, if they are gambling away their paychecks, if they are unable to do things because they're in the state of blackout or they're continuously intoxicated, this is a major thing. And a lot of people will say, well, I thought this was just a phase somebody is going through in college. Okay. Let's say you're in college and you're engaged to somebody who says that they're drinking socially and, you know, they have a lot of beers or glasses of wine. Well, you might think, okay, well, this is just a phase. Once we're out of college, this will end. When marriage comes, they'll settle down and stop drinking alcohol. This is really a myth. Usually it's a myth. If somebody is drinking heavily in college, it is very unlikely that just getting married or even having kids is going to affect their behavior. Addiction is real. It doesn't get cured just because somebody makes marriage vows. So if your prospective spouse is drinking heavily or experiences blackouts or doesn't remember what happened when they when they were intoxicated and can't remember conversations and stuff like that, then this is a huge, huge, huge red flag. And it is your cue to decline to marry that person unless unless they go through counseling and whatever else is needed in order to end that addiction. If you're going to get married, you have to marry them with the knowledge that you are marrying them for who they actually are, not the person that you want them to be, okay? It was very interesting in a marriage case I was working on years ago, one of the witnesses said something to the effect of, when people get married, women want to change their husband. Husbands want their wives to remain the same. And, you know, that is, of course, a generalization. But there is some truth to that. A lot of women take men on and there are serious things that they want to change about their men. Okay, this is not the attitude to go into marriage with because it just leads to destruction and failed marriages. The other spouse is not supposed to be considered as a project. If a person really wants their spouse, their prospective spouse to change something, it should be done prior to the wedding and it should be done for a sufficient length of reasonable length of time that one can reasonably assume that that thing has actually been changed and it isn't changed just for 
just to please the other person in order to get them to marry him. There is another element that I would like to bring up before I close these different thoughts on aspects of marriage discernment is that one of the things that fairy tales don't really help us with when we are discerning marriage is that they can give us the idea that people from widely different backgrounds can easily live together with no real adjustment needed for them to to live happily ever after together. So for example, if you have a peasant who is all of a sudden marrying a princess, we should realize that widely different family backgrounds can be a source of huge disagreements and can be a source of not just disagreements, but also can be a source of conflict in marriage because different families might see the world differently, particularly when you're speaking about people who are coming from different nationalities, different ethnic groups, different financial, social, economic backgrounds, etc. So differences should not just be glossed over when discerning marriage, they should actually be looked at seriously together by the prospective spouses because the differences in lifestyle can be unexpectedly huge. This is just a very minor example of how coming from different backgrounds can be a period of adjustment and discomfort for the spouses. But I remember dining with a couple who came from widely different backgrounds. One was a very successful businessman. He was solidly upper class. And his wife came from a very impoverished migrant family. And I remember that she turned to me as we were eating and she confided to me that she was horribly scared of doing or saying the wrong thing at the table and being judged by it by our hostess, who was a very prominent person in the community. This poor woman had the material equivalent of being, you know, one of those people who marry the prince in the fairy tale, but she was acutely uncomfortable in this social situation because not only was this a different culture than her native culture, but it was also a different socioeconomic situation where the expected etiquette wasn't something that she was familiar with or comfortable with. I bring this up not to say that people of different backgrounds should not get married, but that people from widely different backgrounds should be aware of the fact that it may take a lot of adjustment and practice in order to be comfortable in their new situation in life. So now I would like to go and turn to the other way in which the happily ever after fairy tale myth can influence our vocational discernment and life today in our culture, which is in the common idea that the grass is greener on the other side. Now, we see this, we see this come pop up in the here and now. There's a lot of times when we might be thinking that, oh, this person is enjoying life much more in their situation than in my situation, right? That's where the grass is greener right now 
on the other side of the fence. Okay, and then we also have the idea that the grass is greener in the future. So, for example, and specifically in the vocational context, it could be, well, I will be happier when I'm in this vocation. So, for example, I will be more devout when I become a priest. I will be more devout when I become a religious. I will be more devout when I get married. But in the here and now, I guess there is a sense that the here and now is not important, only the future. And it's the future that's going to be better. Um, Another way this can be thought of, or another way this happens in real life, is when you feel that living in a vocation will make you less lonely. So I won't be lonely if I get married or I won't be lonely if I rejoin a religious community or I won't be lonely as a busy parish priest or I won't be lonely in as a consecrated virgin. You know, these are myths because they're telling us that we're going to get this great benefit of not being lonely in a future vocation. And here's another one that's very common as well. And that is the idea that you will be fulfilled in a spouse and or children. The most extreme example that I have seen of this idea actually happened when I was in college. And one of my friends came up to me one day and she said to me, Therese, I think we're going to have to not be friends anymore. Of course, she was doing in real life what we what we might do on Facebook is defriending. And so I was really surprised because we got along, we got along very well. And we were, I thought we were pretty good friends. And so I asked her, well, why do you not want to be friends anymore? And what she told me surprised me. Basically what she said was that, that as a friend, I would be expecting to visit or see her once in a while. And that if she was married or had kids, that she would not be able to visit with me. In fact, what she said was that her duty would be to be with her family, with her husband and family. She told me about her parents. She said, when I was growing up, we were always with my parents. Our family was everything. And she talked about this significant wedding anniversary where her parents left in order to go to have a dinner and a movie. And after the dinner, they came straight back home and they were crying because they missed their children so much, okay, that they didn't even make it to the movie. And so her conclusion was, well, it's wrong for me to go out and do things with other people because I can only really do things with my family, with my husband, with my children. And so... Of course, this was a huge misunderstanding on on her part as to what marriage is all about. A spouse and children are not meant to be the only people that a person is friends with. But I would say that a lot of times people have somewhat of an idea that they're going to find all of their fulfillment in their husband or wife. You know, that idea where they say, oh, he or she completes me, okay? And they're my missing half or I'm going to be fulfilled with this person. And that is not what marriage is about. 
marriage is about two different people getting together in a very special kind of friendship, but it's not the only friendship that they will experience. So these different myths about the future, like I'm going to be more devout, I'm not going to be lonely, I'm going to be fulfilled, completely fulfilled in this other person, or I'm going to be fulfilled in some way in these different vocations. These are all myths because a vocation is not going to be the complete fulfillment of our desires. So for example, just because somebody becomes a priest, it does not guarantee that that man is going to be more devout, more holy, more prayerful. Just because somebody gets married or is in a religious community does not mean that they're never going to have periods of loneliness. Why? Because loneliness is something that only God can cure. Because when it comes down to it, any other human being, it doesn't matter if it's a spouse, it doesn't matter if it's your child, it doesn't matter if it's a, another member of your religious community or your parish, it, all of these other people, they're not going to be present with you 24-7, first of all. And the other thing is, you can feel lonely in the middle of a crowd. You can feel lonely with your spouse right next to you because ultimately a human being can never give you 100% fulfillment. They can never be 100% present to you. Put yourself in the other shoes, okay? Do you see yourself as being created to alleviate and completely eradicate the loneliness of somebody else? Is that your purpose? Were you created in order to be side by side with somebody 24 seven so that they don't have a moment of loneliness? Of course, that's ridiculous. And so we should not have an unrealistic idea as to how other people are to live because they do have their own path in life. It may be yoked with yours, but to completely eradicate loneliness is not part of the deal for marriage. As a closing thought, I would like to suggest that you do this exercise. I would like you to write down the five different ways that the fairy tale happily ever after myth is influencing your thinking today, whether it be about marriage, whether it be in some aspect of life where you're postponing doing something until you are in a vocation, even though it's something that you can do today. For example, if you're postponing, like St. Augustine said, oh Lord, let me be chaste, but not now. Well, maybe it's something that you can do right here and now, but you just don't want to. So list the top five ways in which the grass is greener on the other side about something that you can make a change to here and now, or something that influences your idea of the future in a particular vocation. All right. Thank you for listening. This is Mother Therese Ivers with doihaveavocation.com. Mm-hmm.